Let's get to it. Grab your Bibles. Revelation 14. I don't have a lot of notes, but I got a lot of thoughts. So it's going to be uh, be one of those studies. Revelation 14. Uh, and one thing that's helpful, we're jumping right in. One thing that's helpful in this text is there's a, a section right in the middle uh, where John just kind of comes out and clearly says what he's after, which is really helpful in Revelation because there's so much symbolism and imagery and numbers that you're trying to make sense of. Like anytime somebody can just be like, hey, this is what I'm after. Like, oh, okay, that's good. So right in the middle of our section, this is what John says. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. That's what he wants. Like everything that he's talking about, this is smack in the middle. Like what I'm after is the endurance of the saints. I don't want these people to give up. I know it's hard, but I don't want you to quit. I don't want you to give in. I don't want you to be duped. I don't want you to kind of fall away. I want you to endure. And he gets more specific about that. He says, um, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. I don't want you to stop obeying, even when obeying is unpopular in your context. I don't want you to give up your faith in Jesus, even though Jesus is mocked in your context. I'm wanting you to be faithful and endure. So, how's your endurance? And normally when we think about endurance, we think of like long distance running, uh, which is awful. Uh, when I was, in tra- I was in track, I said, coach, anything with a turn is distance. So let's just kind of keep, keep that in mind. <clears throat> but normally when you, there's like these endurance, I didn't mean to mock you if you're like really into that. Some people are into that. Good on you. Uh, but, but you think of endurance like these endurance races, like let's run a marathon and then let's get on a bike and ride forever and swim. And like they just go. And it's impressive. They have this endurance. Like even though it's hard, like they just keep going. But endurance doesn't just apply um, to those type of events. Endurance is a part of life. Like maybe you're in a really hard job and it's difficult and you don't like your boss, but you just kind of keep at it and you just keep going and you can endure those hard things. Or maybe you're in a hard marriage. <clears throat> And you're just, you're seeing help, you're seeking help, but it's just conflict and it's tough and you seem to be fighting, but you don't give up. You just kind of press on and you just endure. Or maybe you can sit through a long sermon. I don't know. We'll find out. (laughs) But endurance is an important part of the Christian life that sometimes we miss out on. The word for patience in the Bible means long suffering. And they talk about it as a good thing. Like, you are able to suffer for a long time. That's great. That's godly. That is a godly thing. Now, we tend not to celebrate that in our culture. Like, any kind of uh, feeling of suffering, we think something must be wrong. And we need to get out of this as fast as possible. But in Scripture, it is applauded as a godly trait that you're able to suffer for a long time. Suffering, endurance, this is an important aspect of Christianity. Following Jesus in a fallen world is hard. You will want to quit. It will be difficult. And he's applauding and he's championing or he's calling for the endurance of the saints. So how are you going to endure? Like, how are you going to last? How are you still going to be in love with Jesus and worshiping Jesus 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now? Because we've seen, we've seen people fade out. Like, oh, they used to be here. They used to be a part of this. They used to be engaged here. And now they're not. Like, how is that not going to be you? Because it's not going to be like college students. Like, you got 50, 60 years of following Jesus. It's not going to get any easier. Like, can anybody amen that one for them? Like, yeah, okay, that was, that was felt. Like, we're there. We're connected, right? Like, so how, how do we not throw in the towel? How do we not quit? How, how are we going to last? And if you remember John's audience, like, they're facing really hard stuff. 
like being tied to a stake and lit on fire and persecution and jail and death. Like this is what they're facing. Um, so, so he goes on to say this. This is the very next verse in verse 13. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Now, death was a real reality for them. If you remember even the, the encouragement given to Smyrna, one of the seven churches, like, be faithful unto what? Death. Like, be faithful even in the face of death or the, the souls crying out under the altar, like, how long, O Lord, until you avenge us? And he's like, rest a little while longer. Part of my plan is more of my people have to die. Like, that was his plan, right? So he's saying, yeah, death for following Jesus, that's a real reality in your future. But then he says, verse 13, it's like, but blessed are those who die in the Lord. Yeah, that may happen. Like, he's not trying to, like, sugarcoat it for him. Like, yeah, you very well may die. But blessed are you if you do in the name of Jesus Christ. Because what you do carries over to the next life. I mean, that's, that's an important thing to believe when it comes to your endurance in the face of hard times. Like, the, everything you sacrificed and you suffered for is worth it. And you will be repaid a hundred times over in the kingdom of God. Like, that's important to believe in the face of suffering. I mean, do you believe that? Do you believe, like, what you do here carries over and matters for the next life? Do you believe that there's more to this life than just this life? And if we did believe that, wouldn't that shape how we live? How we spend our time? How we spend our money? How we spend our energy? Well, let me just ask it this way. Is it affecting how you live? Or, or have you kind of just slipped in to making your life about this life? You know what I mean when I say that? Like you make your life about this life. How much money are you going to make? Where are you going to live? How are you going to retire? What are you going to wear? How are you going to eat? What are you, like you're just consumed with this life. We're living for like the kingdom of God and the return of Jesus Christ and eternity, that seems like so far out there. I mean, that is miles and miles down the road. I mean, to endure that long, to live that long, I mean, that, take, that takes some endurance. To stay focused there and not get caught up with the things of this world, not get caught up with everything around you and the things that this world says are so important. Like, to do that's going to take some endurance. So how do we get better at Christian endurance? At staying faithful to what matters most and not getting sidetracked from that. Like the ability not to lose our way. That's what we're going to look into. So Revelation chapter 14, um, we've got 24 verses. We're going to go into four verses into chapter 15 as well. But let's, uh, let's jump into this. And I want to give you a warning. There's just some really heavy stuff in this chapter. Like I'm not going to pull any punches. There's some really heavy stuff that we're going to look at. Um, but the motive is for our endurance. Like, I don't want you to quit. I don't want you to get duped. I don't want you to give up. I don't want you to give in. Like, at the end of all things, I want you to sing and not scream. And I think that'll make sense as we kind of get into some of the things that are talked about here. So, chapter 14, starting verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name on their foreheads. And I want to stop there. Mount Zion's referenced 155 times in the Old Testament. And it's always talking about the dwelling or the true city of God, the dwelling of God. And we've talked about the 144,000 we saw back in chapter 7. So I'm not going to go into that if you want to go back and, and listen to that message. But here we see the redeemed people of God. 
in that number. And there's a contrast between the real lamb and the false lamb that was mentioned in the chapter before. Chapter 13, verse 11. Remember, Jordan talked about looks like a lamb, sounds like a dragon, right? And then you get that kind of false lamb to the real lamb that we're seeing here. And there's a contrast between that false lamb and the mark of that beast and then the true people of God and them being marked by the name of God and Jesus Christ. So, so you got two different groups, two different lambs uh, and two different groups of people. And then it goes on and says this. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of a harpist playing on their harps. I want you to remember that. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It was these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Now there's some stuff in there. Like, what, what are you talking about? Um, virgins? What is it saying? Like, now I think this is imagery. There's not literally uh, virgins, but they're saying these are undefiled people. They've remained loyal to God. Um, they've stayed faithful to God, and he's using wartime language. Like even the 144,000, that's like Numbers chapter 1, like a military census. And he's saying, hey, you're at war. Right? You don't fight against flesh or blood, but there is a war going on between good and evil that's beyond you, that's bigger than, than you, and you're caught in the middle of it. And he's using this wartime language. And in wartime situations, Israel soldiers were required to maintain cer- uh, ceremonial purity uh, before battle. And this is what you're talking about. Hey, you're at war, act like it. Have a devotion during this time. And he says, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. Well, where does the lamb of God go? To the cross. To be slain. And he's saying, your, your faithfulness and your devotion is unto death. Like you will follow the Lord wherever he goes. And he has set an example of self-sacrifice. And you are willing to be faithful and loyal even to that end. But then look back at verse 2 and 3. Because he says, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. Then he says, No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. What does he mean by that? Nobody could learn that song. He's like, it's a tricky song. There's an octave jump. It's just kind of, it's not in everybody's range. No, that's not what he means. So so what, what is he talking about that nobody could learn this song except the redeemed people of God? Um, Well, the best way to maybe illustrate this is I was watching one of those singing competition shows a while back. I don't know if it was like American Idol or The Voice or are there other ones. I don't know. It doesn't matter. <clears throat> and the, a 15-year-old boy comes out to sing. And he sings Percy Sledge When a Man Loves a Woman. And he could sing, but he had no business singing that song. You know what I'm saying? Like he could hit all the notes, but it's like, one, you're not a man. And two, you've never loved a woman. Like you have no idea. But when Percy sings that song, it's like, it's from the gut, right? You know, turn my back on a best friend. We put him down. Ain't nobody. Believe me. <laughs> Percy Sledge fans here. It's a classic song. But you, he, like, he was able to sing the song, but he shouldn't, like, you know nothing about that song. 
Right? Like, you can hit the notes, but you can't sing the song. Like, you're singing about things you know nothing about. So here, when he gets like, the only people who could learn this song are the redeemed. Those who have endured and stay faithful to Jesus Christ. Those who know what grace and mercy and forgiveness mean. It's like, those people know this song. Like, these are the ones, like, they, they got a song to sing. So, let me pose the question to you. Is that a song you'll be able to sing along with someday? Will you be able to sing that song? What about now in worship? When we sing a song like, what a beautiful name. What a powerful name. Do you got any business singing that song? Like not, can you hit the notes or do you sing along or do you like the melody? But do you know the name of Jesus to be beautiful? Do you know him to be powerful? Like, can you sing it from here? Like, do you, do you know, do you have a right to sing? Like, I know what this is talking about, and your worship is real and authentic. He's saying the only people that know how to sing this song are the people that have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. They know the words. Guys, in the end, there will be singing and rejoicing, and we're going to want to be a part of it. But listen, we are learning how to sing that song now. Like in our suffering, in our enduring, in our staying faithful to Jesus in an unfaithful world, like we're learning how to sing that song now. Not like voice lessons, but we're learning how to sing it. Are you tracking with me? Like suffering for, here, get this, suffering for a Christian is singing lessons. Suffering for a Christian is singing lessons. Like, it's like, oh, I know the words of this song. Like I, I, this is in me. Like I can sing this out. You with me? That's encouraging. All right. The next section, we're just going to keep marching. The next section you may title the message of three angels. It's like this time of revealing that's happening here. Let's let's jump into this. Verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now, I don't see this as a time of evangelism. It could be. I'm talking about like divine empowered help of evangelizing the nations. I think that's true. And I think it could mean here. I just don't think that's what he's getting at here. Uh, the, The emphasis behind each of the angels' message is a time of revealing at the end. Um, and it's the time of judgment, not the time of salvation. He says the time of judgment has come, not the time of salvation. Uh, and to a world that has rejected the true God and rejected Jesus Christ as their king, there will be a global reckoning or a global recognizing. You with me on that? Like there will be a time when Jesus is seen as king by everyone. In fact, the word uh, flying directly overhead is like midair, like in our sky. Like there's a, um, this isn't like up in the heavens. This is like in our sky and it's all over the place from every tribe, language, nation, and people. Like there's this global kind of recognizing that Jesus is king. And when it says an eternal gospel to proclaim, the literal translation would be uh, an eternal gospel to gospel. Uh, So the word gospel can also be used as a verb. Uh, so it's good and it means good news. So it's like they're, they're gospel in the gospel. He's good news in that good news, right? That's what he's doing. 
But in the gospel, uh, by this time, was very clearly connected with Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection and atonement for our sins. So he's gospel and he's good news in the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what he's proclaiming. But it's not a time of salvation. It's a time of judgment. So when Paul says that uh, the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow... That doesn't mean everybody will be saved, but everybody will recognize Jesus as king. And that's what's coming. He's like, at, at this time, um, people are going to recognize. Like, the end of time is not a sneak attack, where all of a sudden it happens and people are like, what happened? Who did that? No, Jesus Christ is going to come through the front door. It's like, I'm king, you lost out, I'm here to rule, and you're going to recognize. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, right? And you can either bow or you can bow. Like, that, that's the option. Like, you can either bow to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or someday you will be made to bow. And Jesus Christ is coming through the front door, and there is a realization that he is the king. So to a group of struggling Christians, he's like, don't give up. A day of validation is coming. Those people who mock you, you worship a carpenter's son, are you kidding? It's like, oh yeah, I do. And you will someday too. It'll just be too late. Like there, there is this like proclamation, like vindication is coming. And that's what the first angel is revealing. Then you get to the second angel. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So the second angel announces the fall of Babylon to the great. John's audience, uh, to John's audience, this is clearly Rome, but it's not... Uh, just Rome. It's so much more than Rome. Babylon in general represents kind of an idolatrous system of power in the world. Babylon in scripture is the anti-kingdom. So if Jesus came to preach the kingdom of God and he's going to set up his kingdom on earth, Babylon is the anti-kingdom. So the kingdom of God, Jesus is the king, but the kingdom of Babylon is a man-centered kingdom. It's about us. So if you go back even to the roots of Babylon, started with the Tower of Babel. And why did they want to build the Tower of Babel? To make a name for ourselves. Right? Then uh, when Babylon became a world power and King Nebuchadnezzar kind of stood on the, in his palace looking out, he said, look what I have done. And then he went crazy until he recognized God. It's a great story. You should read it. But it's this man-centered kingdom, this man-centered thing. And Babylon the Great... Like, we still experience that today. Different people have experienced it in different contexts. But it's a very me-centered kingdom. I, like, I know what's right. I'll decide. I'll make those choices. But it's all about me in this kind of anti-kingdom. And Babylon, when it's referenced or sin in a system ways, referred to as Babylon, it's not just talking about sinful human beings. It's talking about sinful human beings in power who are... Um, perpetrating a sinful society. So if you think about it, it's an ungodly worldview that is in power bringing about and promoting ungodly society as a good thing. Like th- This is true living. This is the life. This is the way things ought to be done. This, this is for your good. This is the way we want to do it. And what he's saying is people are buying into that. They're like drinking it up. I mean, he says they're drinking the wine of it. Basically saying you've become intoxicated with the world. You are under its influences. You, you have totally embraced the world's way of thinking and going about things. Like, this is where you find yourself. Like, your hope is in that leader, not God. Your hope is in that nation, not the kingdom of God. 
You're going to like set up your kingdom. We're going to do it this way, the way we want. We're going to fix it where people can live how they want. They can act how they want. They can do what they want. They can love who they want. Like this is where real joy and real freedom is found. Babylon or wherever you want to say America, Europe, Greece. Like this is where it's at. And the second revealing is, nope, it's not. That's a lie. And there will be a realization of that lie. That is not where you find joy. That is not where you find peace or contentment or fulfillment. In fact, the word for passion, when it says Babylon the Great, she made all the nations drink the wine of the passion. That word passion can also be translated wrath. And the irony is like you went after your passions and all you got is destruction. You went after what you f- thought would give you freedom and all you got is slavery. You went after what you thought would just kind of bring deliverance to you and you just got enslaved. You just got destruction. And that's what leads to the third angel. Verse 9, another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and he receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, pouring full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. That's some heavy stuff. And what we see here is the third angel is announcing judgment. And there's a contrast between God's judgment that's happening here and the judgment of the beast from chapter 13. So in chapter 13, uh, verse 15, it says, And it, the beast, was allowed to give a breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the, the image of the beast to be slain. So that's his judgment. Like, if you don't worship the beast... You're going to be slain. Like, you're going to die. I'm going to kill you. And then you get the contrast between God's judgment of, like, well, I'll kill you and then kill you again and kill you forever. And there's, there's two, like, extremes. It reminds you of when Jesus uh, told people, it's like, don't be afraid of those who can just kill the body. It's like, well, <laughs> that's kind of a big deal. Like, what do you mean? Don't, like, yeah, but that's all they can do. They can just kill you. And then they're done. It's like, yeah. It's like, rather be afraid of those who can, the one who can kill the body and the soul. After, after death. He's like, don't, don't be afraid of the beast. What is he going to do, slain you? Then, then you're singing songs. Like, that's it. Rather, here's what you need to check yourself. Fear the Lord your God, who can bring judgment eternal. And there's a contrast between these two judgments. And it's like, the, the, the way that the beast is trying to scare you is nothing. You need to fear the Lord. And those who drank the wine, the wine of Babylon, he's like, well, I got another drink for you. If you want to drink that, here's the cup of God's wrath. And it says that it's poured in full strength. You're like, what does that mean? Well, in ancient times, they would cut wine with water and make it last. You could like three to one, ten to one. You're like, you can just cut your wine with, with water. And what he's saying is like, all the judgment that you've experienced on this earth has been diluted until now. But in the end, you will get the full strength of God's wrath. You get the full strength of God's wrath, and it's eternal. And listen, I get it. In our culture, there's like this, 
stigma or people look down upon any church that wants to talk about hell. Um, like, you know, you're just trying to scare people, turn or burn, flip or fry. You know, you, you know, you need to, like, why would you, like, you, you just, like, don't like people that talk that way. Like, why are we talking about hell? Like, make me feel good. Like, I came to church. Help me. Like, Jake, I brought a friend. This is awkward. Like, what? You know, <clears throat> we want to, like, something uplifting. But hear me now. Hear me now. Hell is real. And the wrath of God is real. And we do no favors to anybody pretending that it's not. And John is clearly talking about the reality of God's wrath, his eternal wrath. And if you drink that first cup, it's going to lead to the second cup. So let me get personal. Have you drank the first cup? Like, have you drank the cup of Babylon? The ways of the world? Like, have you drank the Kool-Aid? Now, I know that's kind of a twist because normally that statement is given to the kind of people who buy into like crazy religious things because of the Jim Jones incident. But, but John kind of flips it here. He's like, have you drank the Kool-Aid or the wine? Have you become intoxicated with the ways of the world? Have you bought into the world system? Are you like a subscriber to the world, the worldview of the world? Are you kind of there like self-promotion type of Babylon king? Let's make a name for myself. Let me, I decide how, what's right and wrong. I decide what I need to do. I decide everything in my life like your king. Have you bought into that? Are you worshiping the beast? Because that's the connection. And, and that's what's weird. Because, listen to me. Chances are you're going to say like, no, I don't worship the devil. Okay. But what if you worship what the devil wants you to worship? The same thing? If you're like, no, I don't worship the devil. Okay. You're probably not like lighting candles, doing seances, playing with Ouija boards. But what if you're just obsessed with money and your life is just about making money? What if you are obsessed with your looks and are so devoted to your appearance? What if you're just obsessed with sex and you're consumed by all kinds of sexual morality? What if you're just obsessed with self-promotion and turn every conversation back to yourself? You want to project an image to the world. You're just obsessed with status and power and respect. You could say you're marked by it. Like, it's just who you are. It's how you think. It's how you live. Like, you're just marked by it. Those are beast markings. Those would be like, yep, he's with me. He's one of mine. He's living out my values. Isn't that kind of sobering to think of it that way? And you're so worried about, like, I don't want to get to put a chip in my hand or something. Like, But listen, there's not like these two groups Like one group of people worships Jesus and then you have another group of people that worship the beast and then most everybody else is just kind of neutral in between. We're just like, well, I haven't decided yet. It doesn't work that way. There's no picture of that anywhere in scripture, especially in the book of Revelation. There's no Switzerland. Like nobody's neutral here. Like you're either with Jesus or you're with the beast. And if you're just like, well, I don't worship Satan. But if you're not worshiping Jesus, you're worshiping what Satan wants you to worship. And you're with the beast. And that's why John goes into, like, right after this, the verses we looked at at first, this plead for endurance. Like, don't give in. 
Don't give in to this world. Stay sharp. Like, don't stop obeying. Don't, don't uh, abandon your faith. Stay faithful unto death. Like, there's more to this life than what this life is. Then he goes into this next section. <clears throat> you have a harvest on the earth. Um, there's, there's two harvests. There's a grain harvest and there's a grape harvest. Um, and it kind of brings you back to a parable Jesus told about the wheat and the weeds. Um, that there was a sower that sowed good seed and it grew a crop of wheat. But uh, at night, a bad sower came in and it sowed a bad seed and weeds came up. And they're like, what should we do? Should we go out and pull the weeds? And he's like, no, because you might uproot some of the wheat. Let them grow together, and at harvest time, when we harvest it all, we'll separate it then. Well, this is harvest time, and there's separation that's happening. Look at verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head, and he had a sharp sickle in his hand. Who is this, church? Jesus, right? And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, uh, Jesus has the sickle in his hand. An angel coming out of the temple is kind of representing orders from the Father. Like, okay, time is up. Time is now. Let's bring in the harvest. The fields are ripe for harvest. Now, the ripeness of the harvest is not just a future thing. Jesus addressed this in Luke chapter 2. He's like, look up. The fields are ripe for harvest. But at that time, he wasn't addressing a field problem. He was addressing a worker problem. We need to send more laborers into the field. It's ripe for harvest. But we labor in the field. We spread the gospel. But there's going to come a time where it's fully ripe, like it's ready. And this is where it's at to bring in the harvest. And this harvest is Christ gathering his people to himself. But there's another harvest. I was going to tell you, this is some gory imagery that we're about to get into, but it's gory on purpose, all right? Verse 17, then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle, and another angel came out from the altar. The angel had authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had a sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the great harvest from the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. It would be like 184 miles, roughly the length of Palestine, about four and a half feet high. And in the imagery of a winepress, you'd throw the grapes and you'd kind of trot them. You'd just smash them till the grape juice came out. Well, that's the imagery given to people under the judgment of God and blood is flowing out of that. And this is a harvest of unbelievers for judgment. Now, I know we don't like to talk about God's wrath. I mean, that's some gory stuff there, right? And one pushback from this when we read passages like that, it's like, that doesn't sound like God that I know. My God is a God of love, not a God of wrath. My my God would never do that. Well, it's in there. I don't know who your God is. Is it the God of the Bible? But we struggle with like embracing a God of wrath, which can be a very ethnocentric view, especially from Westerners in a, in a pretty cozy context. Because if you grew up in Sudan and your family was slaughtered because they followed Jesus, you want to believe in a God of wrath and a God of justice. But when God is holy and just and sin exists, wrath is needed. In fact, wrath and love are connected. The greater the love, the greater the wrath. The greater the love, the greater the wrath. I mean, think about it. And this is kind of a heavy illustration, but that's the point. We all have this 
righteous ethic that says rape is wrong and people that do that should be punished to the full extent of the law. But what if the person raped was your daughter? Does your passion for punishment and wrath go up? Any dads in here want to answer that question? Why? Because of love. Because of love. Like the sin violated somebody you love. And the thirst for wrath increases because of its connection to love. And God loves his creation. And he loves his people. And he loves his name. As sin has been an assault on all of that. And the wrath of God is real. And the wrath of God is real because the love of God is real. And the wrath of God is furious because the love of God is amazing. We can't take this lightly. And church, I don't want to be a a pastor that talks about this lightly. I want to plead with you to be reconciled to God. Why you still can. Wake up. This life is not about this life. It is about King Jesus. And wake up and turn to him while you still can. Because there is hope for sinners who deserve the wrath of God. And even though this text is talking about future judgment of unbelievers, the language in it is very um, much resembling another time when God's wrath was poured out outside the city, which is the language he uses here. It's when Jesus had to carry his cross outside the city, and he was crucified outside the city, and his blood was shed outside the city, and his blood is sufficient to cover all that need it. And hear me, church, either you receive the grace of God through Jesus Christ being led outside the city to take the wrath of God for your sin in your place, or you reject Christ and you will be led outside the city to face the wrath of God on your own. You track with me? Like Those are the two things. Either Christ is your covering and he takes the wrath of God that you deserve or you reject Christ and someday you'll be led outside the city to take on the wrath of God yourself. But for those of us that know the lamb, the true lamb that was slain, that are willing to follow him everywhere, we don't fear the wrath of God. We don't fear the wrath of God because we know the grace of God. We know the song. We know the song of redemption. We know the song of forgiveness. When you sing about grace, it's like, I know that tune. I can sing that as a forgiven sinner. I know how to sing that song. The song of the redeemed, yeah, I can sing along with that one. I know what grace means. I know what mercy means. I know what it means to be forgiven. Like, I'm able to sing along to that tune. And look how it ends. Go to verse 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So you get a completion of his, his wrath here. And I saw what happened, or what, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who had conquered, now that's the same language used at the end of every letter to the churches, to the seven churches in Revelation. There's this promise to those who conquer, to those who conquer. Conquer what? Like don't give in to this worldly system. And these people that have conquered, the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God. Are you bringing the harps back out? In their hands, and they are singing the song of Moses, the servant of God. Why the song of Moses? 
This is a song of freedom, like we've been let out. We've been oppressed by this Babylonian system, and now we have our freedom. They're singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Because remember, it was the Lamb's blood that was put on the doorpost that got their freedom, and it's the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, that gives us our freedom. You with me? Right? And it's like, I know that song. That's the song I could sing. It says, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And that's how it ends. With more singing. You guys see that? There's been so much singing in the book of Revelation. So much worship. Like this, this is what he keeps coming back to again and again and again. Now, I want to take a step back from all that we just looked at and look at it kind of as a, as a whole to kind of get the main point. What is John after? You guys remember at the beginning? What is it that John is after? Our endurance. This isn't a call. Like right in the middle of this is a call for the endurance of the saints. So he, what he's after is like, I don't want you to give up. I don't want you to give in. I don't want you to be duped by this worldly system. I don't want you to fall away. I want you to press on. I want you to endure. So if that's what he wants, what does he do? If that's what he wants, what is it that he does? He talks about the end. He's like, I want you to be faithful until the end, so let me talk about the end. Let, let me, th- this whole section is bookend with worship. There, there's a time of revealing. Like, oh, those people that are mocking you for following Jesus, they're going to bow too. Those people that are punishing you for following Jesus, they're going to be punished too. And they're singing at the end. He's like, I want you to stay faithful to the end, so here's what I'm going to do. I want to talk to you about the end. I want to paint a picture of the end. I want to describe the end to you. I know I've geeked out before on the Lord of the Rings uh, movies and books here, but you get this great imagery. So Frodo has this like amazing, overwhelming task. Um, you guys see the movie? Okay, like seven of us are not, we're just here, locked in. He has this like, it's been out for a while, okay? He has this like overwhelming task to carry this ring that kind of is evil to destroy it and save the world. And he's way over his head. He's got to face all kinds of suffering and difficulty. And he has somebody with him. Sam uh, is his buddy that is in this task together. And every time they face suffering, you know what they do? They talk about the Shire. It was their home. And sometimes they'll just like, ah, the trees are probably in bloom right now. They'll just talk about like home. Like, that, that's where their mind goes back to in the midst of suffering. And this is what John is doing. Let me tell you about your home. Let, let me tell you about what you have to look forward to. Let me tell you about whose you are and that he's coming and that he cares for you. Guys, I, I think one of the biggest problems for us as American Christians who have a level of comfort is we don't think about our future enough. We don't long for the kingdom of God like we should. We're very comfortable where we're at. And it is detrimental to our endurance. I heard a convicting definition of foolishness the other day. And I'm guessing you don't consider yourself a fool. I'm here to help you see otherwise. (laughs) The definition was this. Foolishness is thinking about what matters a lot, a little. And thinking about what matters a little, a lot. Like this is the definition of foolishness. You kind of reminiscent of Psalm ninety twelve of like, Lord, teach us to number our days that we would have a heart of wisdom. Like part of having wisdom is knowing how short life is and that this life is not about this life. 
But the definition of foolishness here was foolishness is thinking about what matters a lot, a little. And thinking about what matters a little, a lot. And how often are our thoughts just consumed by things that don't really matter that much? What am I going to wear? How does my hair look? Do people like me? How much money do I make? What am I going to do when I retire? What car do I want to drive? Where are we going to eat? And we're just kind of consumed, consumed, consumed. And how little thought do we give to the glory of God and the coming of his kingdom? And it's what Jesus said. He's warned us like, don't be like the Gentiles or people that don't believe in God who worry about what they're going to wear and what they're going to eat. But rather seek first the kingdom of God. Or Paul tells Timothy, he's like, hey, yeah, bodily or physically training is of some value. It's of some value. But godliness, that training is of value now and for the life to come. It's of eternal value. But how often do we flip it? We're so consumed with our physical fitness and neglect our spiritual fitness. To live faithfully, we can't think foolishly. And too often, we think a lot about things that matter a little. And we think very little about what matters a lot. We can't expect to stand against lust and pride and self-centeredness and greed when our thoughts are consumed with how we look and what we drive and where we live. But if we're consumed with the glory of God and His coming, what power does lust and greed and self-centeredness have over us? That's why it's so important. Be at church Worship God. Get in your Bible. Keep it in front of you. Here's what I want you to remember. Remind yourself of heaven to motivate yourself on earth. Remind yourself of heaven to motivate yourself on earth. And I don't mean like self-centered heaven, like, oh, I'm going to have a cabin by the lake someday. Right? No, I want to like, someday I'll see the glory of God and the coming of my king. And if you kind of dwell on it, because that's what John does. It's like, I want you to uh, motivate you for faithfulness on, on earth. Well, then let me talk about heaven. Let me talk about the worship service that's waiting you. There's a song that's going to be sung, and you're going to want to sing along to that. You're going to want to know those words, and those words are learned through faithfulness, through suffering. So don't back down. Remind yourself of heaven to motivate yourself on earth, and you've got to fight to keep it in front of you. And it's a fight. So many things pull us to like make a lot about something that doesn't really matter a lot, to make your life about this life, and it's not. And our hope as a church is that you would not drink the wine. Don't drink that Kool-Aid. Don't get bought into this world system that those are the things that matter. They don't. Our hope is that someday at the coming of Jesus and they bring out the harps and they strike up the band, you're going to be someone that's like, I know this tune. This is a song of redemption and of forgiveness and of King Jesus. And I've been following King Jesus wherever he led for my whole life. I can sing to this song. That's our hope. Guys, listen. The key to endurance is thinking a lot about what matters a lot. And we see this best in Christ Jesus. This is Hebrews chapter 12. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with what? Endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he what? 
endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How did he endure? It was the joy that was set before him. And guys, because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, there is now joy set before you. And you have something glorious to live for. Amen? So when we celebrate communion, we remember Christ's sacrifice. It's not just about your forgiveness. It's also about your endurance. Remember that as we remember him. Let's pray. Father, I pray for those of us in this room that may have drunk the wine of Babylon and we're intoxicated with the ways of the world and we care a lot about things that matter a little. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would sober us up. That before your wrath comes, we would drink the cup of Jesus Christ. We would remember what matters most. You, your glory, your kingship. Wake us up to who you are. That we would endure unto death. Because we do believe. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. Because what's done in this life carries on afterwards. Pray this in your name. Amen.